it's, a, uh, it's an amazing thing when a pulpit is turned over to an ex-felon by a pastor. It's a sacred trust. I have a huge responsibility. Uh, I'm, I have been speaking in our churches now for a quarter century. And for over 20 years of it, I never felt that I was really sharing to you what Jesus Christ means to me and hopefully what he means to you. And um, just over four years ago, what I had to share changed in a really big way. And so I'm looking forward to sharing with you uh, what I'm doing now uh, because the Lord is just so good. I have a video which I'm going to share with you. Um, It's my story by NBC. And what you need to know about this video is somebody in NBC read my first book, Journey into Darkness. And they invited me out to New York because they wanted to interview me for a possible news story. And I went out there, and we talked, and they wanted to do it, so they set up to have me filmed by the West, in the West Coast, by the West Coast News. And they did this news story, and it was bigger than they anticipated. And so the West Coast producer called New York, and they said, look, we just finished the piece about Stephen Arrington, and we need to send it to you, but we have a problem. And they said, what's the problem? And they said, well, it's three minutes and 25 seconds long. And they said, you know the rules. You see, they only had, this was Friday night national news, and this was their big prime moment, but it can only be two minutes and 20 seconds long. It cannot be longer than two minutes and 20 seconds. The entire uh, half-hour news then was 22 minutes. It can't be longer than two minutes and 20 seconds. They said, cut it. And they said, we can't. They said, send it to us. We will cut it. And they said, what is it on? They said, it's on a lay youth ministry. They said, no problem. We'll cut it. And they got it. And they couldn't cut it. And they showed the whole thing. It was the first time they'd actually done a single news story that had already been planned that was more than two minutes and 20 seconds long. I want you to know that this news clip open the doors to public schools. This was an incredible endorsement. And part of because of this, I got to speak in over 3,000 public schools in 49 states. I've been sponsored into uh, uh, 36 states by police departments. Um, This was an incredible blessing. So here's my story by NBC. Long story short, I grew up in Southern uh, Southern California to a broken family. My dad was a child abuser and an alcoholic. When my mom kicked him out, that was good news. It was the first time I could go home and not be afraid of being whipped almost every single night with a strap. Um, But I wanted a father. I wanted a father. I just didn't want him. You know who I wanted for a father? I wanted Ronald Reagan. (laughs) He was big on TV. It was uh, 20 Mule Team Borax, uh, um, Desert Something Days. Um, I I thought he'd be a great father. I really did. Uh, My heroes were Jacques Cousteau and Daniel Boone. I wanted to be a diver. Oh, you weren't supposed to show that yet. Um, It's okay. Leave it there because now they're curious about it. Uh, Long story short, I graduated from high school. Oh, my qualifications as a speaker. I graduated at the very top. We had over 500 students in my high school. I graduated at the very top of the lower third of my class. (laughs) I have ADHDDE, Hypertension Deficit Disorder Deluxe Edition. If anybody else has it, it's a gift. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a disability, it's a gift. Because you're never bored. You're never bored. You can do lots of stuff. Um, I joined the Navy. I became a Navy bomb disposal frogman. 
Uh, I worked at the Secret Service protecting foreign heads of state. I worked at the CIA. I worked with police departments. I was a, a, a chemical, nuclear, conventional, uh, bomb disposal frogman. Um, I, I, it was amazing, the adventures that I had, diving all around the planet and all this. I loved it, and I was the chief of Explosive Ordnance Disposal Team 11. You called me chief. Uh, I did four tours in Vietnam, never got hurt, never hurt anybody. Got stationed in Hawaii, was learning to surf. My new friends, when they weren't surfing, they were on the beach getting stoned on marijuana. My friends were using a drug. What did I start doing? Using a drug. Um, see, the thing about friends, I'm going to kind of pick on you guys because you're right up here where I can get right to you. And I, I know you guys are back there. Um, the thing about friends is don't you friends want to do things together? Isn't it always more fun to include your friends? You're doing something good. You want to include your friends. Well, here's the bad news. If you have friends who are doing something wrong, they're going to try to include you anyway to that too. Um, we always try to include our friends in what we're doing. My friends were using marijuana. I started using marijuana. My new best friend is the one who sold it to us. He asked me to help him, and I did. Now, you have to understand what happened. Is he t I told him first, I said, I don't want to be a drug dealer like you. And he said, Steve, I'm not a drug dealer. He said, a drug dealer is somebody out on the street selling drugs to strangers. Any drug, any stranger. He said, they don't care. He said, I care. He said, I only sell marijuana to my friends. <laughs> what? No, no, no. What I'm doing is I'm helping my friends. Okay, was he helping his friends or was he a drug dealer? He's a drug dealer. When somebody is going to tell a lie, who do they have to lie to first? Yeah, you know what? And it's more than that. They have to convince themselves that it's okay to tell the lie. They have to convince themselves that the lie is okay. And then it becomes a habit. And pretty soon, when they're asked a question, they don't even have to think about it. They just lie because a lie is easier than telling the truth. And that's what I did. And we got caught. And I got caught with two ounces of marijuana. And it ended a 14-year naval career. I got an honorable discharge, barely. I didn't even think I earned it, but I got an honorable discharge. And I got out, and I went to college. And I majored in prerequisites. Because I figured there's a reason why they want you to know this stuff. So that's what I took. But I still had a marijuana problem. I was still addicted to marijuana. And then a man stepped out of my past who I had not seen in seven years. And he was an engineering genius. He invented things in the aviation business. He made great money. And he wanted me to go to work for him. And he promised me all this really neat stuff. Promised me an airplane. Promised me to start me off at 50000 a year. This was in 1982. And I went to work for him. And I saw that he was corrupt. And yet I still chose to work for him. Immediately lost respect for him. Who did I lose respect for next? For myself. I lost respect for myself. And then he revealed what he was really doing. That he was flying cocaine from Colombia. And he wanted me to co-pilot a plane from Colombia to the United States. And I said no. And so they brought out the guns. And they said it's silver or lead. Get in the airplane or take a bullet in the head. What did I do? I got in the plane. See, here's, here's what's important about this. When I was the chief of a bomb disposal team, we had a motto. No man left behind. Bomb disposal teams were only men at the time. No man left behind. You had courage because you had a team. You had brothers. You had a purpose. You had meaning. You had stuff you believed in. You could have courage. And now I'm with people from the Medellin drug cartel who are killers. And I'm all alone. And courage became elusive. And I wound up on a plane heading to Colombia and came back with 650 port, uh, 640 pounds of cocaine on that plane. I hated what I had become. 
I had worked with police departments, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, the Secret Service, the CIA. What am I doing with these people? What, what was my ticket that got me in all those problems? That first marijuana cigarette. It was illegal. I changed, it changed who I was. And I was in a world I didn't want to be in. Now they ordered me to drive a car from Florida to California full of cocaine. I had $24 million of the cocaine in, according to the prosecutor. They ordered me to drive this car. I get in this car, and the car is surrounded by Colombians with guns. So what am I? I'm scared, right? I'm in with guns. I get in this car, and I start to drive it out of the parking lot. My hands are just shaking, and I get out on the interstate, and I turn on the radio. You see, I just, I just want some music or something. I just want to be distracted because I'm scared. And as I turn on the radio, can we have it up here, please? Um, Ronald Reagan, the President of the United States, announces the war on drugs. Now, what was he to me? He was my hero. He was the man I wanted to have as a father. He was also my commander-in-the-chief in the Navy. October 14, 1982, he announces the war on drugs. As I drove the car across the United States, did it in just under four days, I realized I could not deliver that car. I couldn't do it. I abandoned it. I walked away from it. A long story short, men with guns took me back to the car. What did I think they were going to do? They're going to kill me. This is the Medellin drug cartel. They have killed thousands of people. I've just proved them unreliable. They're going to kill me. I'm just looking for a chance to run. While they check the car to make sure the cocaine's in it, I start to back away. I'm going to turn and run, and suddenly I see a dozen men come running out of the darkness with rifles, pistols, and shotguns. One slams a pistol alongside my head. He yells, move and die. Another one jams a shotgun on my chest. He says, put your hands up. What do you do? Move and die. Put your hands up. I put my hands halfway up. I put them on the steering wheel. They were shaking. And then the guy with the handgun yelled the greatest words he could have yelled. He yelled, federal agents, dirtbag, you're under arrest. The relief. I'm not about to die. I'm going to prison for a long time. Next image, please. Um, this is the cover of the Los Angeles Times coming up. Is it? There it is. Now, this is my co-defendant. I find out that my co-defendant is John DeLorean. It's called The Drug Trial of the Century. It commanded the headlines of all the newspapers, international everything, for, uh, for over a year and a half. Um, there's John DeLorean, but look who's above him. And he's like this. Which image did I want to be associated with? Next image, please. There I am. Okay, there's John DeLorean. Um, I was in prison, uh, in a jail unit, for eight and a half months before I could plead guilty. You see, I wanted to plead guilty. I knew I was guilty. I knew I deserved to do my time in prison. Because something happened to me in prison. Uh, without getting into it, there was a big problem. It was a fight. There was a fight between a teenager and a senior citizen. And the teenager lost because the senior citizen took a pipe and hit him alongside the head and fractured his skull. And I had to clean up the blood. I was the inmate orderly. And when I got back to my cell, I was covered in blood. And um, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I got down from my bunk. Now, there's something you need to know about me. If you asked me if I was a Christian at that time, I would have told you I was. Because we occasionally went to church over a two-year period, mostly on Christmas and Easter. Uh, and that was my Christian experience. Uh, when I got out, when I uh, became, got on my own life, I occasionally went to church. And I remembered something about that the gut, blood would set you free. 
And I was covered in blood. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I got down on my knees. The last thing I saw before I closed my eyes were the jail bars, the shadows of jail bars on the side of the cinder block wall. And I commenced to pray. Now my prayer got an answer. I didn't hear the answer. I felt the answer explode in my heart. Okay, I didn't hear it. I felt it. I said, Father, I am so sorry. I have thrown my life away. Society has locked me up. Friends have turned their back on me. My family doesn't want to be my family anymore. What about you? Are you there for a sinner like me, a felon in a prison cell? And just like that, one word exploded in my heart. The word was always, and it changed my life in a heartbeat. Now, did it take away my problems? Do you know how much time I was facing in prison? 145 years to life. This was not messing around. The cocaine in that airplane, the prosecutor said, was worth a quarter of a billion dollars. That's after it gets you know, passed around. It really wasn't worth that. But because of the quantity of the cocaine, because of the RICO Act, because of everything they possibly could have charged me with, I was facing up to 145 years. So when I gave my life to Christ, did I think I was giving him anything of value? I had hit rock bottom. Miracles began to occur in prison. The first one is that they finally offered me a deal. We won't charge you with anything else. We'll charge you with driving the car and with the, cocaine, with the conspiracy for the cocaine. Just two counts. The most you can get is 30 years. I accepted that plea bargain. They had a parole officer come in and talk to me, and she interviewed me. And I told her that I wouldn't testify against anybody except myself. I'll testify against myself. I won't testify against anybody else. I'm the lowest guy. There's nothing I, had, I, I did that you don't know. And there, she told me, you're right. We know everything you did because everybody else is cooperating. We know that they twisted your arm. The Medellin drug cartel twisted your arm. I have another word for it. Okay, They use guns and knives. Um, she said, but we both agree that you... And I said, but you know, we both agree you need to be punished. She says, how much time do you deserve... And I didn't even think about it. I said, five years. She was shocked. She said, what? Five years? I go, yeah. She said, you're not going to argue for time served? And I go, no, I deserve to be punished. She says, why five years? And I said, well, by the time I get sentenced, I will have already served 10 months. And with the two-thirds thing, it means I could have just barely two years left to serve. And that's enough time to punish me. I deserve to be punished. That's enough time to punish me. But it's not so long that it'll change who I am. 30 years would change who I am. I, I, I want to be a good person. I used to be a good person. I want to be a good person again. I went before the judge. What did he give me? What did he give me? Five years. The prosecutor said that this man deserves the maximum sentence you can give him. This is an international case. The amount of co- cocaine was huge, and he's refused to cooperate. He deserves a maximum sentence. And the judge gave me five years. That was the first really big miracle in prison. Now, other miracles began to occur. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about prison, okay? But um, I, I, got in, I, was, I got into the honor dorm at the prison very quickly because I was trying to change my life. You see, what is the Department of Corrections about correcting behavior? What did I need? I need corrections. And I was praying about it. Uh, I even asked the Father. I said, Father, you know, why do I have to spend this much time in prison? You know what I mean? Why? And um, I, I, I had my Bible. I had my inmate Bible. And I, and I sat down on the grass in the south yard of the prison. And I just opened my Bible. I wasn't asking my Bible a question or anything. Please understand that. I was just opening my Bible. 
And, uh, and it's what's going through my mind is, why do I really have to serve this much time? And I read Romans 5, 3 to 5, and I'm going to read that to you. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Who did he give the Holy Spirit to? How about an inmate in prison, too? How about me? He gave it to me. And my life was changed forever. I became known as the happiest guy at T.I., T.I. is the initials for Terminal Island Prison. The happiest guy at T.I. Later on, one of the guys said, you know, Steve, he says, you're the luckiest inmate I know. He says, you are a one lucky inmate. And I said, I'm not lucky. He said, what are you? I said, I'm blessed. They said, what's the difference? Well, lucky is happenstance. Blessed is purposeful. It's from God. And if God is blessing me, it means he has a purpose. Now, you need to understand this. When I was facing five years in prison, I believed that God had a purpose for me. Because he has a purpose for who? All of us. He has a, a, a good plan for all of us. Good things. I left the prison camp. I left the prison. I got sent to the prison camp. Now, when I went to the prison camp, I went in to see the unit manager who was in charge of inmate rehabilitation, and he hated inmates. He's a redneck who hates inmates. He's in charge of our rehabilitation. He says, Arrington, says here that you are an honor inmate at the big house. He says, all you big house inmates are just trouble. He says, but because it says that you are an honor inmate, which just means you didn't get caught, I'm going to let you be a plumber or a dishwasher. Now, these are good jobs. Plumber paid 17 cents an hour. That's good money in prison. And uh, a dishwasher gets extra food. I was a vegetarian. Extra food from the dishes and pots. Those are good jobs. I said, but sir, I'd like to be an inmate fireman. He said, what? I said, fire. You know, he said, shut up. I heard what you said. He says, you can't be a fireman. He said, I don't normally explain this stuff to you fools, but I'll tell you this. is to be on the fire crew, you get to leave the prison in a fire truck. And that means you have to be in the honor dorm. To be considered for the honor dorm, you have to be here 18 months. You've only got 18 months left to serve. You can't be a fireman, so plumber or dishwasher. I said, sir, if you're asking what I want to be, I want to be an inmate fireman more than... He said, shut up, you're a plumber, get out of my office, and you're a troublemaker, and I got you marked. So I prayed about it, and I went to see the safety officer, who's in charge of the fire department. And I told him who I was. I said, sir, I said, look, I was the chief of a bomb disposal team. I have led men in emergency situations. I'm I'm a medic. I'm an EMT. I can do medical stuff. I can repair the truck because I'm a machinist made. But I said, more important than that is I deserve to be in prison. And I'm a Christian. And I want to do good work. And how could I possibly do more good work than being an inmate fireman? I want to be an inmate fireman more than anything. And I promise you this. If you take a chance on me, I'll be the best inmate fireman you ever had. And one week later, I was an inmate fireman. And it was amazing. And they moved me into the honor dorm. And two months later, after that, the chief engineer of the inmate fire crew was released from prison. And then the senior firefighter went along the turnouts for all of us inmates. And the senior one was here, and the junior one was down here. And he took, well, actually it went the other way. It was this way. Senior firefighter here. And he walked past all the other hang-ups, hangouts. And the last one, he hung his helmet from my hangouts. He hung it from my turnouts. I was stunned. 
The inmates picked their chief engineer. They picked me. Next image, please. How many of you have heard of an inmate driving anything? Really? It doesn't happen, right? There's too much liability. Next picture, please. I got to drive a full-size fire truck out of the prison 17 times to save lives. I got to drive a fire truck. You need to know what this meant to me. For an inmate, next image, please. This is the life that they know. These guys are getting their one hour of sunshine. If I was in a chain gang, which I have been in, and I'm walking down the street with other inmates, and I'm walking by you, shuffling, it's called the inmate shuffle, would you walk up and stop me and want to talk to me and hear my story? Or would you maybe cross the street because you don't want anything to do with me? That's what people would do. Next image, please. What do you see? Firefighters. Now give me another name for the people you see walking. Heroes. Do you realize the gift that God gave me? I'm going to borrow your pastor. You know your job. Um, To put on firefighting turnouts is a huge responsibility. It is a huge responsibility because you are a life saver. You may have to put your life on the line to save somebody else. Anybody who has a cell phone with a camera on it, this would be a good opportunity, okay? I want you to, I want to paint a situation for you. You're driving home. You can go ahead and put it on and snap all the stuff. By the way, before you put it on, I'm going to ask you the question. Okay? How heavy is it? Okay? Now, when he says that, let me borrow this just for a second. Stand up. You, stand up. Put your arm out. Hold this jacket. Straight out. How heavy is it? It's heavy. Okay? This jacket is heavy. I'm going to pass it around so you can check it out later on. It's heavy. You cannot put that jacket on and it not realize the presence that it has. This is the uniform of a hero. This is the uniform of a hero. Someone who is a lifesaver. So now, okay, under the arm with this one. I haven't put it under the arm because it looks cool. Yeah, see how he flipped it over? That's how you hold it. Now, if anybody wants to... Oh, hey, there we go. I'm just going to hit it. Hold it, hold it. (laughs) My son is six foot seven. All right. You're driving home. You get on your street. Don't go anywhere. You get on your street. And the next door neighbor's house is on fire. Smoke's coming out the roof. Flame is starting to come out the windows. The mother's in the front yard screaming, my babies are in there, my babies. You can't go in. If you go in, you will die. You create problems. And then the fire truck pulls up. Come over here. The fire truck pulls up. The chief engineer steps down. Now, this is what the fire crew has been training for day after day after day. This is what he daydreams about, his hope is that he's going to have the chance to rescue. And there are kids in there. And we know that when kids, when little kids, her babies, her little kids, are in a house that's on fire, what do they do? They don't run. They hide. They go under the bed. They go in the closet. It takes an experienced fireman to go in there and find them. You have a cylinder on your back. You have a crew behind you. You have fire hoses. How bad do you want in there? Really bad. Really bad. You are ready to rush, to run into danger to save these kids. You ready to go? Okay, around the church five times and come back. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for coming up. Do you realize what God did for me? He put me in the uniform of a hero. You see, 
I fell from the rank of heroes. Now, I don't want to overstate this, but I was a bomb disposal frogman. And my job, my job was to lead men in danger to save lives. Here, pass this around. This is a really cool helmet. This is an antique. Here, pass it around. It's heavy. Um, my job was to save lives. And when I got out of the Navy under a, f- a shame, nobody's going to call me chief again. I'm not going to be in charge of, a, of an emergency team. What happens to me in prison? What am I? I'm the chief engineer of an inmate fire crew. Could God have tailored a better gift for me? I mean, really, could he have tailored a better gift to me? Did he give me back something that was really important to me? Do you know what this jacket was for me? This was my garment of salvation. Can you imagine when I read this in the Bible? Now understand, I was an uneducated Christian. I'm learning the Bible in prison. But when I read this, Isaiah 61, uh, verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. Uh, My soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me in garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Now, I now know that that's not a garment of salvation, but it was my garment of salvation when I was in prison, and it gave me meaning and purpose in life. And i got to lead these men to save lives. Next image, please. And uh, here I am with my fire crew. I blurred their faces so you can't see them. That's me. That's not our truck. That was the county truck. It was a much newer truck. Next image, please. This is the walk of courage. This is 9-11. Everybody else is running away. What are the firefighters doing? They're going in. Next image, please. This guy is going up the Twin Towers. Do you see the fear in his face? But he's doing his job. 384 firefighters did not make it. 384 firefighters did not make it. We lost them in an act of terrorism. Next image, please. As a firefighter, you never know what you're going to deal with. And you have to be prepared. And I knew this because I led men in danger. So I was training, training my ragtag crew of inmates. We had a bank robber and a banker. They were best of friends and hung out together. We had an orthopedic and a cardiovascular surgeon who loved riding on the back of the fire truck to do first aid. It was amazing. And then it happened. I was up on the hill at the prison teaching CPR. I had been a CPR instructor for almost 18 years for the Red Cross. I'm teaching CPR when suddenly the guard's radio goes off. Inmate fire crew respond, down aircraft. I run outside and I see a smoke column going up into the air about five four or five miles from the camp on a straight line, and um, circling it is a, uh, an Air Force fighter. And so I know this is a military aircraft, and it's a big fire, so I figure it's a B-52 bomber. The reason why I figure it's a B-52 bomber is Edwards Air Force Base is 30 miles away, and B-52 bombers used to fly right over our camp. And when I was a bomb disposal frogman, every bomb disposal team has a, an area of expertise. You know what our area of expertise was? Aircraft carriers and military aircraft. This is my expertise. I left that prison with four vehicles. Three broke down in rugged desert terrain. As we were rolling, I grabbed the radio and I called San Bernardino Command. San Bernardino Command, inmate engine company 52 responding down aircraft, possible B-52 bomber with ordnance and souls on board. I need all the backup you can get. And then I hear it go out over the radio. Makes that really cool sound. And then you hear... um, 
Engine companies 27, 13, 52, or 54 respond with best off-terrain vehicles to assist engine company 52 responding to a downed B-52 bomber in the Mojave Desert four miles from the prison camp. <gasps> in my mind, I can see all these fire trucks responding. And who's leading? Inmates in an old fire truck. Three of our vehicles broke down in the open, rugged desert terrain. It was actually six miles from the camp. When I, came, I went through a soft sand ravine, and when I finally got to the site and I could see the crash, I saw something amazing. I saw an aircraft that was burning over here, and about 200 yards away, downwind, I see a capsule. It looks like something out of Star Wars, something from space. It was so advanced. Next image, please. It was the, the, the aircraft was the B-1A supersonic bomber. This is the most advanced aircraft in the American inventory at that time. This is the second prototype. This is, the, this is an incredible airplane. Next image, please. There it is in supersonic configuration. Next image. Who's the first ones on the scene? Most advanced aircraft in American inventory? Inmates. Next image, please. The whole crew goes out in an ejection capsule. They only did that for the B-1A, of which there was four prototypes, so the whole crew went out. When I, when, as we arrive on the scene, I see the hatch is closed on the side of the, of the capsule, which means the men are still inside, which means they are not capable of helping themselves, and the fire is heading straight for them. I took the fire truck and I slid it in between the, the capsule and the fire to protect it, and that motivates the firemen to fight the fire harder because it's right on top of them. And I had two of them go break open the hatch and get the men out. Two were alive, unconscious, one was dead. The pilot was dead. The way it landed, the way it crashed. For 20 minutes, I directed the scene. Helicopters arrived to assist, and more helicopters came in. Like a dozen helicopters came in, and they, they landed. They dropped off men with rifles. And this one Air Force officer comes walking up to me, and he goes, this is a top secret... Wait a minute. And he reads the side of my truck. Boron inmate fire crew, you guys are inmates. What are you doing here? And I said, well, sir, if we wouldn't be here, you would have lost your crew with the B-1 bomber. He goes, what makes you think it's the B-1? And I said, well, I'm a pilot, and that's the only plane where the whole crew goes out in ejection capsule. That's the B-1. He says, that's top secret from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This whole area is now top secret site. You've got to get out of here. He says, you can't talk about this. And I said, and I held up the microphone. I said, San Marino Command asked me aircraft type, and I told him B-1 bomber. I'm the one who broke the story. I broke the story. He relieved me. He told me to get out of there. But I want you to think about something. For 20 minutes, who was in charge of the top secret crash site of the B-1A uh, supersonic bomber. Inmates. You know, God tailored something perfect for me. And then a few months later, I was released from prison. You know how scary that is for an inmate to get out of prison, to be released? You don't know what you're going to do. Certainly not going to be the chief of anything. Maybe a mop bucket in a, you know, at a 7-Eleven with a broom. That would be my fire at my crew, a mop. When I got out, I went to see a probation officer. And he said, I want you to go to the College of Oceaneering and apply for a job. And I was floored. You see, what I wanted to do is I wanted to go to the College of Oceaneering and apply for a job. How does this guy know that I want to go to the College of Oceaneering and apply for a job? What had happened is, is that when I was working with highway patrolmen and for the prison, I told them that I wanted to work at the College of Oceaneering. And so they called the probation officer, and the probation officer says, go to the College of Oceaneering and apply for a job. So I went to Los Angeles Harbor, I went into the building, they told me to go see the air diving supervisor, Tom Wick, which I did, and I sat down at his, in front of his desk, and I told him that I had just gotten out of prison, and I was looking for a job as a diver, 
I told him my background because I was a hyperbaric chamber supervisor. I've been a Navy frog. I knew commercial diving. I could teach CPR. I could teach first aid. I could teach repair of the equipment. I was a scuba instructor, so I could even teach the scuba aspects. I said, are you looking for somebody like me? And he said, no. And I said, do you know anybody might want to hire somebody like me? And he said, no. But I would like to shake your hand. And so as he shakes my hand, he puts a set of keys in my hand. And I go, what are these? And he says, they're keys to the prison. Uh, excuse me, keys to the college. <laughs> I said, why are you giving me the keys to the college? He says, because you're our newest instructor. I said, I thought you weren't hiring anybody. He says, I'm not. I said, well, aren't you hiring me? He says, no. He says, I hired you yesterday. I said, what? He says, you don't know. He says, we've been getting letters from the highway patrol. We had one highway patrolman told us that if we didn't hire you, we couldn't go through the desert and not get massive tickets. He said, I've been getting letters from the college, somebody called the unit manager and the safety officer, and they feel that you've been doing really, really good, and they would like us to consider you as an instructor for our school, and they sent down the qualifications that you've had. We've read your records, and we decided yesterday to hire you. Next image, please. This is me three days out of prison. By the way, remember the, the prosecutor who said that I was such a horrible, horrible inmate? Do I look like a scarable, scary, horrible inmate? You know, drugs really change lives. They change motivation. They change the lines that you might be willing to walk across, the things that you're willing to do. After potluck, I'm going to be doing an, an adult-only program. How many of you believe that we're in the end times? Okay, I got my hand up. I have news to share. The problems that are going on with drugs in America today, you need to hear this. You don't all have to be here but there are things going on that you need to be aware of. And most people by far are not aware of truly what's going on. I'm only going to need about 15 to 20 minutes of your time after potluck. But you are going to want to hear this. We're talking about saving the lives of children. It's important. So I went to work for the College of Oceaneering. But you know what I really wanted to do? I wanted to talk to kids. That's what I really wanted to do. But I couldn't do it. If you were the principal of a school, I couldn't walk up and look you in the eye and talk to you. I would, I would do it like this. I would look at the ground. I would say, sir, um, I just got out of prison a year ago for drug smuggling, and I would like, I'd like to help your kids and talk to them about drug choices. And the principal said, no. Very good. You know, usually more gruff. No. Okay. Um, I was praying about this. Father, I want to talk to kids. I want to talk to kids. Help me. One year after I got out of prison, a kid drowned at the college. He was cheating on a project. He made it unstable. Uh, next image, please. It fell on him. Now, I was the school medic because my medical background. This is a commercial diver. You see all the equipment? He was cheating on a project that weighed over 300 pounds. It, he made it unstable. It fell on him, and it knocked the diving helmet off of his head. He screamed. They heard the helmet go thunk. They heard it fill full of water. This is hard communication to these speakers here where the timekeeper recorder is sitting. His job is the timekeeper recorder. He has two big clocks, a stopwatch, his wristwatch, and the, uh, uh, the instructor, when they first start, they synced all their watches. We knew how long the kid was down. Over eight and a half minutes without air. What is he? He's dead. He is dead. Make no doubt about it. When they finally got him to the surface, the first diver, the reason why it took so long is the first rescue diver couldn't get the 300-pound object off of him. We had to suit up two more divers. It took three divers to get the object off of him. When they got him to the surface, I reached down on the barge and I drug him onto the, the deck. 
He was purple from too much CO2, no oxygen. His eyes were fixed and staring and glazed. Um, water was dripping out of his mouth. I'm looking at a cadaver. But what's my job? Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. So I got down to do mouth-to-mouth, and in my mind I was praying, Father, let it be your breath, not mine. It's never too late for you, it's too late for me. Your breath, not mine. Did CPR for 20 minutes, assisted by other instructors. The fire department arrived after 20 minutes. They transported him. We knew he was gone. The next night, in the middle of the night, he woke up with his mother present. He returned to the College of Oceaneering, and he graduated second in his class. They said that the reason why he survived is because he was at 55 feet of water depth, high partial pressure of oxygen, and it was cold mud, and so it slowed down his metabolism. I know that the reason why this kid lived was because of God. It was his breath, not mine. Next image, please. This is an award from the Los Angeles Fire Department for saving their life for that kid one year out of prison. Amen. Now, amen, amen, amen. I was a firefighter in prison. Now I get an award as a, from the fire department. Do you know how big this was to me? This was huge. There's something else. As you see, I wanted to talk to kids, and I had a big problem. What was my big problem? No, I had Ronald Reagan issues. I did. I mean, I failed him. He was my father figure. He was the man that I really wanted to, to show that I could do good. I mean, this was important. I wanted to apply for a presidential pardon, but I knew I wasn't a candidate for that. And... Um, Anyway, the Red Cross got really excited about this because none of their instructors had ever saved the life of somebody who had been without air for over eight and a half minutes. Next image, please. So they awarded me their highest award for life-saving. This is it. It's called the Certificate of Merit. Okay, who signed it? You know, I'm not exaggerating any of this. God wants to give us good things. He knows what our needs are. He wants to build each of us into a Christian warrior to do his work. He wants us to save lives. He wants us to save souls. He wants us to introduce people to Christ and let the Holy Spirit take over. This is what he wants to do. This was like a presidential pardon for me. This was huge. One year later, I was teaching at the college, and a man from the Cousteau Society came through because he wanted to attend my diving medicine class. Now, it was just hyperbaric medicine. And... um, his name was Don Santee, and when he left, I said, hey, Don, if you ever need a, a diver, you know, I'd love to join you. They, any diver who meets anybody from the Cousteaus makes that offer. And one year later, my phone rang on the barge, and I picked it up, and it said, I said, Stephen Arrington, and he said, Stephen, it's Don. He said, Jean-Michel Cousteau asked me to call you. We'd like you to join the Cousteau Society. Can you get here in two weeks? Can you come? We have more expedition work than we handle. And I'm just, Wow. Really? I'm getting hired by the Cousteau Society? And he says, yep. He says, can you be here in two weeks? I said, absolutely. And just as he's about to hang up the phone, he said, by the way, your title's going to be Chief Diver Expedition Leader. Who was being a chief important to? Me. And God knew that. And for five and a half years, I went on an odyssey of adventure. Next image, please, of diving with whales and dolphins and sharks. At 6.30 shark, I'm going to share this. I'm inside the world's first all-plastic shark cage with a 17-and-a-half-foot-long great white shark in close attendance. She's actually hugging the cage. For five-and-a-half years, I got to dive with whales and dolphins and sharks. And then I resigned that position to become a full-time youth speaker and motivational speaker and drug education speaker. I'm going to go to the other principal, okay? I already met you, okay? 
But now I have, I have purpose. Sir, I went to prison for drugs. And I deserved it. I deserved it. Became a Christian in prison. Changed my life. Changed my life totally. I got to die for the Custodial Society for five and a half years. I said, I want to talk to your kids about whales, dolphins, and sharks. I want to talk to them about the tough choices, prison. Would you let me talk to your kids? And the principal said, she said yes first. He said yes second. No. At least 20 refusals. At least 20 refusals. And then finding one teacher let me speak in her classroom. And I have now done over 3,000 assemblies in public schools across the United States. Over 3,000 assemblies. 49 states. 36 police departments have sponsored me into their schools. This is what I do. This is why I say, when I say, I've never done this before. I've just started doing these adult-only programs. This is critical. God blessed me in an incredible way. I still had an issue. Nine years ago, I applied when President Bush was president. I applied for a full presidential pardon. And um, I didn't go through an attorney. I didn't make donations to a, public par- uh, to a Republican Party or anything, or the Democrat Party. I simply filled out my application and sent it in. They sent it back and said, well, you've got to add this information, that information, this information. And they got all my information. And what I'm allowed to do is once a year I'm allowed to call the presidential pardon office and ask, say, my name is Stephen Arrington, I'm checking in my pardon, and they will give me one of three answers. Pending, which means no decision yet. Um, denied. Or closed without action. And if you don't know it or not, President Obama closed more pardons and denied more pardons than any other president in history by far. He only pardoned a total of 122 people. He commuted sentences of almost 1,000 people, people who were in prison, but of the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who applied for a pardon, they were being denied right and left. And um, I kept praying about it. Father, I want to talk about hope. I want to talk about hope that never surrenders. Father, I want to use it to show that what you do, how it's a continuous thing, how you work with people. Can I please, can I please have my pardon? I got to talk to the prosecutor in my case two months before President Obama left office. I talked to my prosecutor who's become a friend of mine. Are you ready for that? The judge sponsored me for a pardon. The prosecutor wrote the introduction to my book. Okay? Isn't this amazing stuff? And he told me, he said, Steve, I said, I've applied for a pardon. I'm still hoping. He said, Steve, you're not going to get a pardon. He said, it was leaked. It was leaked from the pardon office. The Obama doesn't want any major drug cases coming across his desk for a pardon. And my pardon was called what? The drug trial of the century. He said, there's not a chance of you getting a pardon. On January the 17th, I'm in my front kitchen making breakfast for the wife and kids. And the phone rang. And I picked it up, and it's a, it's a smartphone. And it says, Washington, D.C. And I'm just going, <laughs> but you see, I get calls about every other week from Washington, D.C. about political polls and everything else. And so I wasn't very hopeful. And I answered the phone. I said, Stephen Arrington. And this voice, it sounded unusual the way he was talking, very firm. He said, Stephen Arrington, he says, this is the pardon attorney's office. I'm the attorney who's been working on your case for years, your file. He says, I'm to tell you that at 4 o'clock this afternoon, President Obama is announcing that you're getting a full, unconditional pardon. Now, 
I can't talk about this without getting emotional. All right? I'm finally at the point where I'm not bawling up here. Okay? Because that's what's happened every other church I've shared this with, with is, is that this meant more than, to me than I can ever tell you. More than I can ever tell you. And you know what I said to him? I said, is this real? And his voice became personable. And he says, yes, Stephen. He says, this is very real. And he started to explain to me about my pardon. And I'm starting to lose it. And he realized after about 15 minutes I couldn't hold it together anymore. And he says, Steve, I better let you go. And just then my wife comes walking out and I'm, tears are rolling down my face. I'm crying. And she throws her arms around me. And she says, Steve, what's wrong? I couldn't talk. I couldn't talk. And finally I just gasped it out. I got my pardon. And she just held me. And my daughter in her bedroom, my oldest daughter was sleeping, not anymore. She hears her dad bawling, and she thinks it's the worst possible news. But I got my pardon. You see, God knew it was important to me. God knew. And when I say hope that never surrenders, I went to prison 35 years ago. And God is still working with me. He's still giving me hope. I'm talking to kids I talked to 6,000 pathfinders in October in Florida. I was out on the East Coast talking to kids from six schools. Uh, it's, it's what I do. I need to come out to Monterey Bay Academy and share this message. Because you see, God has a path for each and every one of us. He has a path for you. And I'll tell you something. is As you start doing good work in God's name, as you start changing lives in God's name, Things are going to happen to you. You are going to experience miracles. You've seen Fiji, what we're doing in Fiji, and all the stuff that all the schools that we're working with. We have now treated over 33,500 patients in Fiji. We've had over 3,050 volunteers go to Fiji to work. My wife and I, we've we got to get involved in this work. The more you do for God, for your fellow man, the more wonder and miracles you are going to experience. And you have never been more needed than right now. Makes me want to live more all out for Jesus. Thank you, Stephen, for sharing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for that incredible testimony of what you have done in just one life. Lord, how much more do you long to do great things in each of our lives? Lord, we claim the promise of Romans 8.32, that you who did not withhold your own son, how would you not with him freely give us all things? Lord, pour out your blessings on my friends as they go from this place. I pray that we would continue to be inspired at 2 o'clock and tonight at, at 6.30. And as we go through this week, Lord, may we remember that you are a God of hope, that we can cling to you, and that to live all out for you is the way to find abundant life. Lord, bless my friends as they go from this place, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.